Good evening and welcome back to Editing Aloud. Thanks for joining us. I have with me as always a panel of sparkling journalists with many views on the economy, which this week has taken a turn for, has not taken a turn for the worse so much as has proved to be pretty terrible even before we went into the corona crisis. Lucanio, GDP figures for the first quarter of this year showing the economy uh, contracted by 2% just in the first quarter. That's the third negative quarter we've had in a row. And that's before the lockdown really began in earnest. So what does it signal about the rest of this year? Well, Hilary, I think you've summed it up quite nicely there. I mean, I think what we're seeing here is, is the impact of what we didn't do I'm going to move to Rob because we've lost you. Rob, what are you seeing for this year, given that we have minus 2% for, for the first quarter? I mean, is this more of a catastrophe than you expect, less of a catastrophe than you expect? What does it look like? Hillary, the, um, the, first, the first quarter GDP numbers that came out only included a few days of the lockdown. So we haven't really seen the impact of, of the full lockdown on the economy. And, and the second quarter is bound to be terrible. I mean, the figures I've read range up to 30%. I mean, so it's going to be a disaster. So I think the implication is that for government to meet Treasury's target of 7.2% contraction this year, um, that even seems too optimistic at this point. I mean, I think that... You know, it, it, it includes a whole lot of expectations that things are going to recover far quicker than they will. And we've certainly seen in the States and elsewhere that, that things don't recover as quickly as, as you expect. And in, as infections keep rising all over the world, I think, you know, the U.S. had 47,000 yesterday, a record. Um, you know, the economies don't recover like people wanted to and like a lot of economists have factored into their models. Rob, as we were discussing just before the show, Paul Krugman, uh, the New York Times columnist writing today that uh, the the evidence from the the states is that there is, in fact isn't such a trade-off between lives and the economy between the health and the economic issues and that if you don't attend to the health issues you are going to get the economy shutting down again i mean do we face something like that in south africa as we reopen the economy yes i mean absolutely we face the same issues i think we can take our lead from other countries that have that have been there and done that and are now facing facing that kind of quandary. Um, if we open too quickly, like to some extent we, we are doing, um, then we could face massive economic consequences as a result. But on the other hand, you know, unlike in the States, we haven't been able to get real relief to people. So we needed to open our economy. I think some other projections say that we're back up to sort of 80, 90% of pre-lockdown levels already. Um, so the consequence, we needed to get the economy going, but there will be Ructions, it'll be bounces, it'll 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 be messy. Look, Anya, back to you. Um, this question of how much relief has actually be, been provided, support has been provided to cushion people from the impact of 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 the crisis. Um, you've been writing, you've been running stories on your front pages this week about the unemployment insurance fund, which is simply not reaching. The people who need it. I mean, is that some, some symptomatic of a sort of a broader failure in the government's response? I would totally agree, Hillary. I mean, I, I think the number that like, we always write about as Genesis is 500 billion, but then as we know, 200 billion of that is supposed to be the credit guarantee scheme. And as far as, and I think the last numbers we got from the finance minister on that was about 10 billion had actually been put out. 
Lucania, you've been running this week on your front pages in Business Day with stories about the unemployment insurance fund not delivering the kind of relief that it should to the people who need it to cushion them from the crisis. Just tell us a bit about what's been happening at the UIF. Um, but does this symbolize a sort of a broader failure in government to deliver the, the stimulus and the relief that has been promised? Yeah. No, Hillary, I mean, I think broadly speaking, as, as Rob was saying earlier, like, I mean, the issue here, like, the fact that we haven't been able to get enough money to people all at the right time, as, as, as compared to what you've seen, say, in other places like the US and the UK, has sort of, like, sort of weakened the support for, 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 the, for the whole lockdown scenario. And I think that the DIF situation is, uh, is actually quite serious, because that's supposed to be the sort of, like, Know, the main tool for distributing money to people and what you've had this nagging nagging like technical technical falls i think like on uh, is some strange things really because i think what happened this week basically and, and people who were, were, were trying to claim for june could not because the system was wrong and it was putting out personal information so that meant that millions of people could not access it and then what, what had happened before we had problems before where they actually they have, they have something like a million people who haven't been able to access this from the word go because they were not registered properly and, and you know you get taken from pillar to post the minister blames the employers the employers blame the uif it's been i mean if you think about it i mean a million people who haven't had any income since end of march still <laughs> i mean no wonder like you know like it's, it's, it's really a struggle to, to keep the national consensus around it. But yeah, we've been running in the Sunday Times actually with the with the story about fraud, alleged fraud, uh, fraudulently paid UIF amounts to the wrong people in really, really very large amounts. So it's a seems to be a technical problem with the fund, but also a possible corruption problem. Um, so now that means the 40 billion that is supposed to be getting to people in terms of the UIF coronavirus related scheme is not getting there. That's a piece of your 500 billion relief package. How much of the rest of it is getting there, Lucanio? I mean, uh, like, uh, Daniel, uh, Warren and I had a chat with, uh, with Daniel Minella earlier from AFSA where we actually questioned him on the, specifically on the credit guarantee scheme and we and we sort of know from the official even then the numbers were a bit confusing i think a few weeks back with the deputy governor reserve bank coven i do said gave us a number that indicated maybe something like 13 billion like just on now on, on the massive base what he was saying then warren did a story of like talking to the banks themselves and the number was closer to like 2 billion and then in the budget last week the finance minister said 10 billion is gone but even even then i mean if you think about it it's Initially, that program was supposed to be 100 billion, maybe going up to 200. So if it's, so it's only like 10 billion, that's only like 10%. Yeah. And, and that's supposed, and that 200 billion is supposed to be a big chunk of an of overall 500 billion stimulus or relief package. As we know, a lot of that, the, the, of, the, of the other 300 billion, is actually about, I think, 130 billion is, is, is about moving budgets rather than creating new expenditure. So it's, you know, it's a bit of a problem. Like, you know, if you think you close down the economy and, and the only way you know, to, to, to have some kind of relief was to actually get these things working. And it, it's not very clear how well they're working. Even though, even though to be fairness on the, on the UIF, it's not the whole 40 billion that hasn't gone. I think, I think 26 billion or something has actually gone to people. So, so, that, so there, has, there has been relief out there. But obviously, like in terms of the need, and in terms of, of the suffering that we've had, like in terms of, we've seen the numbers from the economy, we've seen how many jobs were lost even before COVID hit. So you can imagine how many jobs have been lost since 
April when you had when you were basically closed the whole thing. And yeah, I mean it's I mean it's quite bad that that we've been able to get these things working. And and this is like three or four months since the lockdown. I'm actually wondering whether even now with the reopening, we're not going to see a whole wave of retrenchments as people open up and then realize there is no demand. Um, and Warren, I actually wanted to ask you, how is this loan guarantee scheme supposed to work? I mean, what is it, who is it supposed to address and what is it going to do? Um, and the finance minister did mention in last week's budget speech that they were looking to revise some of the provisions of the scheme to enable it to, to be more helpful in the recovery. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, sure, Hilarisa. The, the initial conditions still, still remain in place. Uh, it's, it applies to businesses with turnover of 300 million rand per annum or less. And the, uh, in terms of the loan itself, the loan is a, um, a loan at prime interest rate uh, that the banks take the first 6% uh, of losses and any other losses they take, they then submit a claim and effectively the states through the National Treasury uh, and the SOB uh, redeems them for those losses. So they are guaranteed, they yeah. have a government guarantee to lend to smaller, small and medium sized businesses. Correct. Existing clients that, 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 that then apply for uh, what they call these COVID-19 loans on the same basis in the same credit vetting process um, as any other loan that their banker would offer them. But the idea is certainly to get the money out as quickly as possible. Uh, and there are a couple of factors that have played into the reasons why it's been taken up so slowly. One of them was that, uh, and again, we spoke to Daniel Manelli from ABSA today who reiterated this, was the large amount of relief that the banks and the large amount of relief and restructuring that the banks had provided to their customers um, prior to the inception of the COVID-19 loans. So if you looked at NetBank, for instance, in the five weeks between the start of the lockdown and the end of April, they restructured roughly 10% of their entire loan book, um, equivalent to about 81 billion rand in the, sp in the space of the five weeks. Uh, the COVID-19 loans only came into effect uh, in about the middle of May. So despite that, despite the large amount of relief and restructuring, the view is that it's still been very slow in the, in the, in the take-up. And one of the other reasons that has been forwarded for that is because um, business owners were, were being very cautious and didn't want to take on more debt. They would rather look at cost-saving initiatives um, to uh, reduce costs as opposed to taking on more debt. So um, the, net, the net effect, though, is that we're still looking at roughly 40% of the president's fiscal stimulus package that is being, um, I'd say, fairly significantly underutilized. Henry, just on the loan guarantee thing, I think it's totally unacceptable what has happened there. The point of it was to get money out to small businesses in an emergency situation. The banks are using the same credit vetting procedures as normal, only now the prospects for the companies are worse. So people are less likely to get loans, even though the losses are ultimately backed by the government. It's, it's, it's an utter failure. It's, it's, it's a failure of conception and execution by the banks and the policymakers. It is 
it's just one of the many, many complete screw-ups we've had in this entire thing. I, I mean, it seems to be in the design of the scheme where, where policymakers insisted that the, loan, that the banks had to be almost as prudent as they would be normally. But if that were the case, That's as Warren's pointing out, they were happy to give relief and restructure debts for people in any case if the customers were that good and they had just to apply the same criteria. So what is it, Rob, that's gone wrong in this whole process? It's this massive miscommunication, partly between government and the private sector. Government expected banks to lend out to businesses that were severely troubled. Um, and, and the banks thought, well, we've got this extra thing, but we still have to apply our normal procedures. So there were different expectations on both sides. And between that, the customers have just fallen by the wayside. The stories you hear of, of companies who've applied for this and, and, and the bureaucracy even of applying for these loans is is a nightmare never mind the actual fact that so many people wouldn't qualify who were meant to qualify according to government's expectations that's one of the many reasons why you can't say this is a 500 billion rand stimulus let's go back to that loan guarantee scheme Lucanio. so now the government has guaranteed these loans so what should have happened is that the government says to the banks take risk lend to companies who might or might not make it take more risk than you would otherwise then you'd expect a higher probability of default on those loans, right? Then the government would have to stand good for the guarantee. So what I'm asking you, Lucanio, is, is the government good for that guarantee? Um, is it anywhere in the budget? Is there any provision for the banks to, in fact, take those kinds of risks to lend to small and medium companies? Yeah. I think Hillary, that that's been one of the fundamental, fundamental problems with this. Like as Rob mentioned, you know, you've, got, you've got a lot of misconceptions but also miscommunication. I mean, I, I think for a lot of people thought, okay, this is what's going to happen. You go to the bank and you ask for whatever. It doesn't, and then the bank gives it to you and then the bank doesn't worry about it because the, the, the loss will be covered. But then on the other hand, the banks have been told, you know, you, even you still have to be prudent. You can't just throw Don't money take away. take too many so you, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so, so then if you, if, if, I, if I say, you know, you can lend to Warren and, 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 then, and, and, then, and then, then when you come and Warren defaults and you come to me again, then I say, but Hillary, but you were like a bit reckless in lending to Warren. Didn't you know that he'd lost his job or, or whatever, you know? So the banks, like, they then have to, like, keep their conservative criteria because, you know, that 6% loss could, could, could easily then become a 100% loss, you know? Because, because it's, not, it's not a guarantee as, as, as in the way that people understand the guarantees. It comes with a lot of conditions, a lot of conditionality. Are you saying that, that the government guarantee is not, in fact, a government guarantee? In which case, I, mean, I don't blame I don't the banks, banks for not lending. I mean, Warren will answer this quote better than me, but, but I think that it is a guarantee. But then, but then I think as a bank, you, you can't then afford to be seen to have been reckless in lending out the money. I think, I think, that's, that, I think that's where the problem is. So, so there the, yeah. the, the, is an incentive for the banks then to be conservative. Because if, 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 the, if, the, if, the, if, if the people default, then, they, then, then at some point the tragedy says, net bank or first rent, sorry, and like, you know, you shouldn't have lent to that person. You should have known that they were like, you know, or, or, or whatever you should have, you know, so, so, so you, you know your, your criteria, you know your criteria, and, and therefore they, they default, it's not our problem. Rob, just, just looking a little bit more broadly than the loan guarantee scheme, that's one of the big components of the relief package. Um, what about the rest of it? Um, is there enough there to sort of almost keep businesses in business to support a recovery? I mean, what does the recovery now look like? 
Um, well, Hillary, as, as you mentioned before, Paul Krugman wrote a lot about this, about how you basically put your economy into the ice. You put it in a coma, um, and then you provide money to keep businesses alive, and then you can take it out of the coma when demand surfaces again. So the, so the issue is that the, there isn't enough money in this economy, as we saw in the budget last week, to keep everyone at 100% of where they were in the first place. The other issue is that you can support it for a while, but you can't support it forever. So demand isn't there, as you mentioned before. So companies are going back to opening up to some extent, but like you say, the demand isn't there. So companies are realizing that it wasn't just wait three months and you go back to normal. So this is another consequence for the banks, I think, is that not just these loans they're currently lending out, but what happens to the other money they've lent to other clients and those same clients beforehand, they stand to lose that as well. Um, so I think the, the wider ramifications of this, uh, you know, nobody quite understands how it's going to impact us all, but it's, it's going to be a lot worse than anyone expected. Rob, your cover story on the Financial Mail this week um, on auditors um, and the role that they have played. Um, you know, what has prompted the cover story? What do you tell us a little bit about it? Well, I mean, Warren actually wrote it, but it's essentially um, this, this advocacy uh, company called um, called uh, Open Secrets has done this report assessing the role of auditors in South Africa and and the need for reform, given the fact that we have had little accountability for some of the some of the highness collapses. You, you know, you can think of Steinhoff, Tongard, you can think of VBS, um, where where the auditor was actually arrested last week in the VBS case. Um, and and the real issue has been the lack of accountability when we have auditing errors. Um, we see this at Steinhoff too, where Steinhoff has paid massive amounts to PwC to clean up the mess created by another one of the big four auditors. So it's about the need for reform, essentially. And we've seen in the UK at the end of last year, uh, Lord Bryden released his report talking about how we should close the expectation gap. What people want from auditors is they want some kind of assurance that these companies aren't just doing bad things and we're going to have massive frauds. But the auditors themselves um, don't, don't think that's their job. So the issue is, I suppose, closing the expectation gap between what the public wants from auditing companies and what they're ultimately getting. Um, I mean, Warren can speak more to that, but I suppose that's that's the reform that is hitting our country right now. Well, at least some reform is hitting our country. Uh, Warren, what is happening in the auditing profession and is it responding to some of the concerns, the many concerns that have arisen both locally and globally about auditing as a profession? Yes, uh, certainly they have. Uh, talking to Loazi Bam at Deloitte uh, and Mark Stewart at BDO just yesterday, Hillary, they are certainly aware of the damage that's being done to the audit industry and its reputation. And um, as, as Rob alluded to, the Brighton report in the UK is, is a very uh, timeless and I think comprehensive review of the audit industry and how it needs to reform and adapt to restore uh, the integrity. And, and I think what, everyone, uh, what everyone's saying is that auditing is actually a public service um, undertaking it's it is something for the benefit of the public for the consumers of of financial information and um and now is the time to to kind of make some of these very um tough decisions around how do we restore this professional skepticism and the independence of auditors uh undertaking their work and funny enough i mean some of the themes are themes we've traversed many years ago like you would have been familiar with uh, with the collapse of Arthur Anderson following the Enron scandal, where questions were asked about 
how how independent uh, and objective can an auditor be when the consulting arm of the business is making millions of dollars providing consulting services to the company that you're auditing. So, so many of these things are, are, are things we're revisiting from the past, but uh, certainly on the local scene, um, at the very least, there's, there's a recognition that uh, there needs to be reform and everyone needs to get together and have some very hard negotiations about what to do to, to, to improve the quality of our audits. Look, I wonder if I can add something on that. If, if, uh, a more of a question. I suppose like that this has become quite a worldwide story as well recently. I don't know what the story is in, with Wirecard in Germany yes. I mean, and, and EY. I mean, how amazing is that? I mean, I read something in the FT that said that at some point the auditors never even looked at something as basic as bank statements, apparently. I mean, and, like, I'm, I mean I'm not saying this is a fact, so like, I hope they don't try to sue me, but, but, but there's something I read in the FT. I mean, how oh, amazing is that? You, you I mean you think there should be some kind of basic, like minimum standards, you know? Absolutely. I think that Wirecard is a story that's been brewing, I think, for a while. And uh, I mean, it's broken properly, in, I think, in the last few weeks. And, and one of the first things that's, that's happened is that uh, one of the first lawsuits was, uh, have been served against EY already in that, uh, in that situation. Uh, and just kind of, again, reiterates the problems that we've had in the audit industry around the world. I mean, you saw in, in places like India, PwC got banned for a couple of years because of problems with, with audits, audits and these type of things. So I, I think the article's timeless and we hope it continues the debate around what needs to happen. Let me move, Rob Rose, let me move from the, the auditors to the companies they audit. Um, results this week from NASPERS. Um, which seems to have got, which seems, which did this hugely complex deal last year and is as much of the JSE index as it ever was. Um, NASPER is doing just fabulously. Some of our local companies doing just terribly. I mean, what is the pattern that you're seeing in the kind of corporate statements now? Oh, Henry, and what is it telling it is us? Interesting. Partly, I think it's because NASPER and process um, are in a good space in terms of. <coughs> Industries. I mean, there's 1.6 billion gamers who spent a lot of time at home in the last couple of months. Um, and so that certainly benefits NASPERS. Um, also, they're digital um, and they're right at the forefront of the e-commerce wave, which is really taking off now. So I think that in terms of, in terms of their particular unique market, it's, it's a really good one. And that's partly why NASPERS' share price on the JSE has risen 34% this year. But we see other companies like Mr. Price, for example, selling their overseas operations and coming back home and betting on the South African economy. And <coughs> sorry, for the many reasons you've spoken about in the first session that Lacanio spoke about and you mentioned, we, we, um, I think it's a very risky move to put all your eggs in the South African basket right now. The economy is, is really, you know, I would say we might have even have tumbled over that fiscal cliff. So I just think it's a very risky thing for Mr. Price to do. Lucanio, what are you seeing in, in the sort of pattern of, of company results and announcements hitting business day? Um, what is it telling us about what the sort of corporate landscape looks like now? Well, I mean, uh, clearly, like, I wouldn't be made to give anybody financial advice, but I, wouldn't have, I definitely wouldn't be buying any property stocks if I was buying any today. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, the numbers, we've, you know, I mean, for them, obviously, like, you know, the, the weak consumer the, the, the demand, demand we had even before. Now you had COVID, now you've got your, you know, your, your your, your company is not actually paying rent, and, and and you don't know how many of those will come back. As you as, 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 as we were saying earlier, with this thing about the livelihood and and, and 
and lives, you know, like the fact that you're opening up the economy doesn't necessarily mean people are going to go back to the shops, because like, you know, people are like, they, they, I think there's, there's, there's quite, people can actually be quite fearful. I, I was telling just Warren earlier, this, this anecdote of my own, where like I, I went to my local shopping mall there, and I, and I saw, oh, my hairdresser is back, and I was like, oh, well, thank you. I was quite relieved for them, but they managed to survive, and they're still in business. But I still didn't go in and have my hair cut because I'm still because the next because the next day you, you read the financial mail about how the numbers of COVID infections and how China are shooting up the roof and then I think do I really then want to go and have my hair cut in the, in the, you know so you're gonna have this this situation so like that, that's kind of when property of course is probably gonna struggle for a while I would think and and and, and, and a lot of our retailers are still gonna remain under pressure I mean I, I think like you know, e-commerce as, as you mentioned process no space I think that's probably gonna be they, they, they would put in the lone bright spot, bright spot for a while. We've got actually a couple of minutes left. And in those couple of minutes, I want to give each of you a really a, like a 30 second chance to say, what do you think is going to be the biggest structural shift that we're going to come out of the crisis with? Lucanius, you first. Structural shift. Oh, we'll be staying at home more. And actually, like, maybe I might become a gamer. No, like, I'm not a <laughs> You're going to stay no, home no, and be a gamer. Warren, biggest, biggest <laughs> sort of structural permanent shift very quickly out of this crisis well yeah i think the the home office i think the home office is is going to be a, a big factor there's going to be a lot more money i think builders warehouse has been every has been busy every time i've seen it so i think there's going to be a lot of reinvestment into homes into and staying home at home rob long-term shift uh, digital. digital digital is going to be for especially shopping and retail that's the, that's where it's at how do they cut your hair digitally and on that note, <laughs> on that note um, <laughs> please join us again next week for another edition of Editing Aloud. And meanwhile, stay safe.